Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Today on Body of Wonder, we are going to interview one of our first fellows, Dr. Sandy Newmark. Sandy is a longtime, very longtime friend and colleague, and I'm delighted to have him as a guest on our podcast. Me too. He's been a leader developing strategies for taking care of kids with ADHD, autism, and also tackling some of the tough subjects like vaccines. Great. Let's hear what he has to say. Dr. Sanford Newmark is a clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of California and the head of the Pediatric Integrative Neurodevelopmental Program at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. He specializes in the treatment of autism, ADHD, and other chronic childhood conditions. Dr. Newmark has lectured widely on autism and ADHD. He is the author of the book, ADHD Without Drugs, A Guide to the Natural Care of Children with ADHD. And we are proud that he is one of the first pediatric graduates of the Integrative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Arizona Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Welcome, Sandy. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored. It's great to have you, Sandy. And I would love to begin by asking about the major differences between the conventional and integrative approaches to the care of children. I would say that before we answer that question, we should answer, do children in our country really need a lot more help than they're getting? And by just about any measure, they are. If we really look carefully, physically and psychologically, and of course we know mind and body are inseparable anyway, our children are less healthy than most of the developed world. Just to share a few sobering statistics, uh, the UNICEF publishes a big survey of overall child health in the developed countries, and we were 36 of 38 on a wide variety of measures. In infant mortality, we're 33 of 36. And we have the second highest rate of obesity in developed nations, aside from the very small Asian islands. So 30% of our children are overweight or obese, and this has risen dramatically. Just since 1970, the rate of obesity in children has gone from 5 to 7 to 20%. And mental health issues are just as concerning. They're, it's a little harder to be concrete about because with mental health, it, a lot depends on what your definition of things are and how hard you're looking as opposed to something measurable more easily like obesity. But in one JAMA study, there is a 27% increase in anxiety and a 24% increase in depression just between 2016 and 2019. And that was before the COVID epidemic. So Sandy, let me ask you, what can integrative medicine offer that conventional medicine can't to deal with these you know, very concerning problems? I think that we need to really look at every level of, of how we take care of kids in our society. And it has to come right from preconception. We know that there are many mental and physical health problems that arise out of nutritional and toxic issues that happen before conception. Things like levels of pesticides and lead levels. And these 
cause real problems, both in child's mental and physical health. So we have to start paying attention to women even before pregnancy and especially during pregnancy. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we do very little of that really compared to other countries. Just as an example, low prenatal vitamin D levels contribute to autism and ADHD and abnormalities of the maternal microbiome and toxic exposures and obesity. All these things are things that integrative doctors look at and try and change even before a child develops a problem. So these are really so sobering uh, to hear the challenges we face. And I have to say, in, in my years of practicing medicine, I have just experienced that more and more kids carry one chronic disease or another, and, and clearly we're going the wrong way. They're becoming less healthy. So it seems like there's multiple levels we have to work at. You know, one is the the social level. You talked about some of the environmental toxins. It's really hard for an individual to fix all of that. But the other is on the individual level and the things that you can do as a parent or a soon-to-be parent. Right, right. The things that you can do if you have care and if you have an integrative doctor who's aware of all this can be very important. If you're uh, a parent, you can make sure you feed your children correctly. And and, uh, right starting from infancy, breastfeed and make sure your own microbiome is in as good a shape as you can get it. And your own vitamin and mineral levels are as good as you can get them. And you can keep your uh, house free of pesticides and toxins. Even, even having flea collars in a house increases the risk of autism and probably other developmental issues. So those are all uh, things that we can do. And of course, you know, diet. Diet is tremendously important in, in all of these things. But I will say, when you look at whatever levels you're looking at, the role of the tremendous inequity in our society is really big. We, we have the highest level of inequity in economic inequity and childcare inequity of any developed nation. And, and this really, this goes right down to the individual level where people aren't able, they're lucky if they have a primary care doctor, much less an integrative doctor. And they're lucky if they can afford any kind of decent food. So we need to really kind of look at every level from government and politics to community and education, and then to the individual family. Yeah, you have set out a very big frame for what we need to do to correct the mess that we're in. Andy, food and healthy nutrition have been core to how you have defined integrative medicine. Can you expand a little bit on what should we be feeding our children? Well, I've, you know, argued that the anti-inflammatory diet should be started as early as possible in life. And then to think about the dietary supplementation that's desirable. Sandy mentioned vitamin D as one example. I would say omega-3 fatty acids are another. And then what we should not be feeding. You know, I would say if there's one step that we could take to get out of the nutritional mess, and it would be to try to get people not to drink sweetened liquids. And that's especially important for kids, not just sodas, but also fruit juice, energy drinks, adding sugar to drinks. That, that one step would go a long way toward moving things in a better direction. 
I have to tell you that coincidentally, I heard today on a podcast that Tropicana has come up with a new breakfast cereal, sugar cereal, meant to have orange juice poured on it <laughs> for breakfast. Great. Seriously. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> The guy said it comes it comes with a little prize in the carton of a syringe of insulin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but seriously, the breakfast that some of our kids eat are terrible. Things like Pop Tarts and uh, even a very popular breakfast of waffles with syrup. You really might as well take a funnel and pour about 15 teaspoons of sugar into your child's mouth and send them off as to give them that kind of breakfast. But it, it's really very common. And as we all know, then... Because of the glycemic index, the sugar goes up and then it goes down and you have unhealthy kids who act like they have ADHD, that kind of thing. You know, aside from the environmental issues and lifestyle issues that Sandy mentions, integratively trained physicians and other healthcare professionals are aware of other kinds of interventions and treatments that are not really known in conventional medicine and not used. And I would just like to say that I've known Sandy for a very long time. I knew him when he was an anthropology graduate student before he went to medical school. And during that time, he introduced me to Robert Fulford, an elderly osteopathic physician who had come to Tucson to retire. And I've written about him, talked about him extensively. He was a master of cranial therapy and uh, I think the most effective healer I've ever met. And one of the areas of his great success was ending recurrent cycles of otitis media ear infections in kids and infants, which conventional doctors treat with rounds of antibiotics and that, you know, many, many problems associated with that kind of treatment. And he would do simple manipulation to change breathing patterns. And that was the end of the ear infections. I mean, this, I had never seen any kind of uh, medicine like that. And it really uh, shaped my thinking and was one of the foundations of the philosophy that led to integrative medicine. So I've heard you talk extensively over the years about Dr. Fulford, but I did not know that it was Sandy who made the introduction. Sandy, how did you come across him and what did you learn from him? Because my own daughter had developmental problems, I, I, I was looking for some help and I got his name and I went to him and he was very helpful. I and mean, he didn't fix everything, but he really, he really seemed to be helpful. And I then went and actually kind of followed him for a summer, you know, once twice a week. And it was really remarkable seeing the kinds of things people would report to me. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is he came to Tucson to retire <laughs> from Cincinnati. And, and uh -huh. he, uh, he first was working out of his house and then the demand got so great. He got to, he had to have an office. And <laughs> Yeah. I don't know whether you would be willing to tell us a little bit about how Dr. Fulford helped your daughter or perhaps one of the other children that you saw. Yeah, he did help my daughter and, and he did a lot, you know, a lot of work to kind of open up her, her whole cranial area. And, and it seems like she just sort of brightened up after that. And, and you, you could just see it move more, you know, because she was, I think she was probably eight months old when we brought her there. So the sutures hadn't closed. And then, I, you know, I saw other people who had long-standing pain syndromes, you know, abdominal pain or back pain or something like that, uh, that just went away in one or two treatments. It was quite remarkable. One of the patients that I remember you taking care of when you were a fellow at the center was a teenager who had a chronic pain syndrome. I'm wondering whether you could describe 
how he got help because that was a somewhat different approach. Yes, that was amazing. I was just thinking of Harmon when, when you said that. So this was a boy who at age 15 was an entirely normal child. And he got a sinusitis, which was then accompanied by a headache. I'm going to miss a few details because this is now like 20 years ago. But basically, he got a sinusitis and then a headache and the headache wouldn't go away. And he got treated with various things for it. And and then because the headache didn't go away and he was out of school, they decided he was depressed. And they treated him with all sorts of psychiatric medications, none of which worked. So he just gave up and went back to it and had a headache for about six months and finally got better. Three years later, he developed this horrible neck pain with a neck tick. And he was literally just taking away this really fast, painful movement of his neck all day long. And once again, you know, he went to the orthopedist, the neurologist, they couldn't find anything. So they decided that he was depressed or that he had, you know, a functional pain. And he went down this whole array of psychiatric medications, none of which did anything. And he actually used one which caused a tardive dyskinesia, which luckily went away. And finally, at the end of all this, he's, he's homebound. He can't do anything. He's in pain. He's having all these ticks. And, and we brought him to see Harmon Myers. And I was the fellow then who did strain counter strain, you know, um, an osteopathic manipulative technique. And after the first session, which was like half an hour, he said he felt significantly better. And Harmon just told him to, um, to go home and take it easy and not do anything different. And, and come back in two weeks. He came back in two weeks. He was back on the baseball team. He'd stopped to all his medications. And after Harmon's second treatment, he was better. It was gone. I never saw him again. And I called him and it was like, well, I'm better. He's back in his normal life. And it was just really remarkable. And one of the lessons from that is, of course, you have to look at alternative modalities. And especially if you have a musculoskeletal abnormality, you go with a muscular treatment, a musculoskeletal treatment. But the other one was, this was a normal kid. He'd never had a psychiatric or psychological problem in his life. Why at the age of 15 do you decide, you decide that he has such terrible depression that it's causing all of this? Yeah, he did have depression, but it was because his neck hurt and he couldn't go to school. And he lost all his friends and he couldn't play on the baseball team. So, Sandy, I know what you'll say in answer to this, but how do you feel about the current fad of putting so many kids on psychiatric drugs and multiple psychiatric drugs? It seems to be completely out of hand. It is completely out of hand. It's really terrible. There are a small percentage of kids who really do need them, but I think we're vastly over-treating even with one psychiatric drug. And and then the, the number of kids who have multiple psychiatric drugs is just amazing. It's awful. And I think most of our psychiatrists have, have become medication dispensers. They, you know, they see kids, not only it's not just their fault because they're only paid for insurance only wants to pay for 15 or 20 minutes, you know, every month or two or whatever. And, but they, they simply see the kid ask a couple of questions and if the medicine isn't working, a lot of times they just add one. How much progress are we making with integrative psychiatry training? I think we're making really good progress. At OSHA, we have two, three now wonderful integrative psychiatrists who are using all kinds of uh, 
other methods to help the kids, including doing real therapy, including mindfulness-based stress reduction, and including uh, even expressive arts therapy. And I think we're making good progress, at least where I am, you know, San Francisco. What, what's happening across the rest of the country may be a little more limited. You know, the other interesting thing, you know, is that take care of a lot of ADHD. And sometimes I do need to use medication. But do you know, we have the most of the medications we use for ADHD are now 60 years old, Ritalin and, and Adderall. And there hasn't been a new one in 30 years. I mean, that's really awfully remarkable, in a terrible way. I mean, think of all the other good medications we've had. You mentioned um, that sometimes you need to use medication when you're treating ADHD, but I know that most parents, uh, well, most parents who come to integrative medicine would rather not use the medication. So what are the other strategies that you turn to? Yes, I, I think uh, this is where a whole child integrative approach can, can really be so helpful. It's not one strategy, but I use nutrition, of course. Sometimes I'll use elimination diets to, to because there's food sensitivities involved. Definitely the anti-inflammatory, low-glycemic diet, omega-3 fatty acid supplementation for everyone, because that's where the biggest research on ADHD is, is omega-3s. I look at iron as measured by ferritin because low ferritin is associated with ADHD and a remarkable number of kids have low ferritin who have ADHD. Look at vitamin D levels. And then the lifestyle things are really important. Sleep, exercise, screen time management. Screen time is just an unbelievable problem in the kids I take care of. Now that the schools are often having kids use computers in the classroom all day, and for their homework, there are kids who are literally on screens almost every minute of their waking life. Wow. Wow. I, I know that you get asked this question despite being a pediatrician, but does adult ADHD really exist? And how do you diagnose it? Yes, it, it does really exist. And you can see that because kids who have relatively severe or even moderate ADHD do grow up to be adults with ADHD. And in fact, most of the time when I see a kid with ADHD, one of their parents goes, oh, it's just like me. Oh, it's just like me. <laughs> so I think it really exists. It should be diagnosed by a full, a full history and physical and, and, and good testing by a doctor with experience, but it's not, it's just diagnosed. There's, there's companies now that actually put out advertisements that saying, get your AD diagnosis, get your Adderall. And they give this little list of, of symptoms, all of which anybody could convince themselves they have. And then you, you can go get your Adderall at, without ever being seen by anybody. And these companies are all competing with each other for, uh, for market space. It's, it's really awful. So ADHD for in adults is the most quickly increasing sector of treatment. And it's it's even more, I think it's gonna end up being even more overdiagnosed than in than in kids. It seems to me in the in recent months, I've seen more and more articles speculating on the cause of autism and saying that we're getting close to finding, you know, what how it originates. What are your what's your thinking about that? Well, I think it's 
it's definitely multifactorial. And we do we do need to realize, I mean, the, the incidence and prevalence of autism has gone up very dramatically in the last 20 years or so. Some of that is just diagnostic, opening of the diagnosis. And some of it is looking harder, but some of it is very real. And I think it has to do with a combination of nutrition and toxic factors. I just want to share with you one really amazing study. I'll read you this little part because it's just so. We report the DNA methylation profile of a child's neonatal whole blood can be significantly influenced by his or her mother's neonatal blood levels. We found that mothers with high neonatal blood levels correlate with altered DNA methylation at 564 loci in their children's blood. To put this another way, is for a girl or boy born today, if their grandmother had high blood lead levels, which they passed on to their mother, this would affect their DNA methylation. And if that's true, just think about the amount of lead, for instance, that was in mine and your blood when we were having our children. When I was in medical school, the acceptable blood level is was less than 20. Now it's less than five, and we know that it should be, you know, for every number it goes up between one and five, there's a correlating decrease in IQ. So this to me is a tremendous example of how toxins may be causing all and methylation is a big problem in autism. So this is a tremendous example of how toxins can be really affecting our children still even the ones that are going down and many others are going up. Any treatment options for autism that, you know, integrative me- medicine is aware of? Yes. So there's a word called biomedical treatment for autism, and that's really kind of a nutritionally based integrative approach. And this is what I do. Half my practice is autism. And this has to do with cleaning of the diet, often a gluten-free and casein-free diet, and some of the same things as autism, fish oil and and various things, but other things are even a little more out there. My most successful treatment right now for autism is methyl B12, methylated vitamin B12, because as hinted at by that, a lot of kids with autism don't methylate well. And when you give them this methylated B12, they can often have dramatically positive reactions to it. Another thing is folinic acid, which is just basically an activated folate, because they also often don't absorb folate very well. And some of them, even some of the kids with autism, even have antifolate antibodies. And so folinic acid can be absorbed. And there's studies showing that uh, folate can actually, folinic acid can actually improve autism symptoms. So those are the kind of things we're doing. We're doing it on just a little basic research because it's really hard to get that research done but there is research and it is safe so so one of the things that we have learned from epigenetics is that if you can fully methylate genes which you do with methyl donors which come from b vitamins and folate then that genetic predisposition may not get expressed And you also do it with a really healthy diet that includes leafy green vegetables that may be harder with some kids with autism. (laughs) But but how early do you have to start to have an effect? That's a really good question because one of my pet peeves is how late kids are diagnosed with autism. Uh, So many of my 
parents telling me they told their family doctor or pediatrician there was something wrong as early as six months, nine months, 12 months, and they just sort of got put off for another year, year and a half. And those are crucial times. The earlier you start, you know, the better your chances. I don't think there's, you know, hardly any age before adulthood. I wouldn't try it. But the, the kids who I see who have the most dramatic improvements are three, four, five, even not even eight, nine, and ten. So it's so important to get that in early. Three, four, five years old, you're saying. How about the integrative medicine approach or ideas from integrative medicine to prevent autism? So there's a good story I know about that. I know two people who are primary care pediatricians, but also take care of a lot of autism. And in their practice, they have not had in the last like 10 years, a sibling born to a child with autism who had autism, when the risk is 10 times as high. Wow. Wow. If you have one child with autism, you have another. And this is the simple things. Avoid during pregnancy, avoiding pesticides, avoiding other toxins, taking the prenatal vitamins, making sure your omega-3 levels are okay, and trying to work on your on your biome. We know the biome is abnormal in, in mm-hmm. autism. So all those things can really make a difference. There's one study that showed if, if women were taking their just the amount of folate in their prenatal vitamins, the risk of pesticides causing autism in their kids was dropped significantly. So it's it's really this whole bunch of simple nutritional and toxic and avoiding things. And then, of course, once the kids are born, you do the same things. Just like Andy was saying, the, the good diet, the omega-3s, the probiotics, the fermented foods. So I, I think that's the way we do it. How do you deal with the rising incidence of anti-vaccine sentiment? And, oh, uh, gosh. I know. <laughs> Tough question. But what do you think about that? Yeah, and- I mean, it's really hard. And because of the nature of my practice, I probably even get a little more of that yeah. than anybody else. And I just I just try to be really rational about it and uh, point out that the benefits are so much greater than the possible side effects. One of the stories I tell people, which is the truth from my internship, is when I was an intern in, in 1985, practically every week you'd have some infant come in with Haemophilus B meningitis. And, you know, they either died or they had brain damage or they became deaf and because we didn't have a vaccine until the children were two. And then they developed the vaccine that we gave it to in four and six months. And now living pediatricians, I mean, anybody who's a younger pediatrician has ever seen that disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that I kind of try and tell them that story. But I mean, I don't try and kick them out of my practice. And we fear occasionally, I don't think vaccines cause autism, for instance, most of the time, but something triggers regressive autism in some kids. You know, there's Autism, which is there all the time, and other kids never develop well. Then you have these kids, which is even sadder, where they're 18 months, two years, two and a half, and they're just normal, and they just start to lose their their mm-hmm. milestones. And, and anything can trigger that. I've seen gastroenteritis triggered or nothing triggered, but occasionally I'll get the story. They got their MMR. They got a fever to 104 for a week, and after that, they stopped talking. I'm not going to tell that parent that right. <laughs> it wasn't yeah. caused by a vaccine, and nor am I going to tell that parent to get more vaccines. I just won't. But that is such a minority. 
Yeah. Do you think there's any reason to modify our vaccine schedules or to delay giving some of them? Yes, I do. When I was in primary care uh, integrative medicine, I most of my patients who came to the integrative practice wanted a, a uh, modified vaccine schedule, and I didn't mind at all. So two major modifications. And one, I don't think there's a reason you have to give hep B at birth. If you know somebody has been well tested, now that may not be true for certain parts of the population who don't have good prenatal care or have higher risk, but for most of the people I was seeing, it wasn't necessary. And second, I would give like, instead of five vaccines at two months, four months, and six months, I would give them half at two months, then a couple of three months, then four, and five. just spread them out a little so it's not mm-hmm. such a shock to the nervous system. It seems to me that that just makes sense. But yet everybody would get all their vaccines on time. As our, our friend Randy Harwood says, I mean, vaccines may be the most brilliant public health measure ever invented. Mm-hmm. And I hate to see us kind of turning away from them and Especially because of you know the politics of it now, this strange combination of <laughs> of Trumpism and anti-vaccinism is really strange. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. I wanted to talk a little about something else that I think really affects our kids' mental and physical health. And that is the change in our, in the structure of our communities. You know, we used to grow up in my generation as kids and then a little less in the next one in a neighborhood where usually our grandmother lived in the house or next door and her cousins and aunts and everybody was around. And we often grew up, in, at least I did, and many people in a neighborhood where everybody was sort of stable. We knew everybody who lived near us and they all watched out for us. And now that is so not true. People live thousands of miles from, from their grandparents they they live in neighborhoods where nobody knows them, and it causes tremendous stress. So now instead of, you know, you come home from school and, and one parent or other is home, and I won't say it should be the mother who could be who should be home, it could be the dad for sure. But now, you know, you parents are both parents are working, you send their kids to the preschool program, not preschool, and then they go to school, and then they go to aftercare, and then their parents pick them up and rush home and try and get something decent on the table before they're exhausted and everybody is completely stressed. Mm-hmm. And not only that, kids can't go out and play so much anymore. You know, it used to be kids went out and played and that's that's how people develop their ability to interact socially, not when some soccer coach is managing them on the field, but when they're running around by themselves, forming groups and figuring out how to play. And I think this whole change of society has really had very negative effects uh, on our children. And it's a hard one to fix, right? That is a hard one to fix. And yeah, I was hoping you were going to say something about time outdoors, because I think 
that's the other side of screen time is people are staring at their screens as opposed to wandering around the trees <laughs> and playing in the grass and, and being outdoors. And, and that too seems to have a really negative effect on kids' mental really health. Does. Yeah. We're, 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 the research on screen time and things like ADHD and autism and stuff is still not there yet, but the early research indicated it, it's really bad for us. And, and children, little preschoolers who exposed to more TV end up on screens now. I mean, how often do you see two-year-olds staring at a a tablet? It's frightening. When I was growing up in Philadelphia, from a very early age, I was traveling around the city by myself. You know, I'd go to connect with my parents in downtown, taking public transportation. It felt safe. I mean, I think that's one way that I developed my independence and and self-confidence and you know it doesn't feel that way anymore no it doesn't and what's sort of hard to figure out is how much is real danger to kids or how much is just paranoia because of our our news distribution and system i'm sure back when i was a kid there were kids who were you know got into trouble in some way or other but but you know they weren't so overprotected. I did the same thing, Andy. I lived in Queens, and I would my friends and I would take a, a bus into different parts, or I'd take a train and go see my mom in, in the city. She worked, and nobody thought anything much of it, you know. And you don't have to live in the country to play outside, by the way. I played in the schoolyard, football, baseball, whatever, you know, all the time, and, and it was still being outside. So I, I think that's really important. You know, the the other thing is getting back to the government level. When they expanded the child tax credit in early 2021, it figured it reduced child poverty by 30% and food insufficiency by 25%. And then a year later, it was gone. So talk about a simple thing you could do that hardly had any impact on the budget. Because, you know... Everything we said that kid, kids have a problem with these days is worse for children. You know, they got less medical care, they got less good food, they have more stress, they're exposed to more toxins, you know. So at that level, there's so much we could do. Sandy, give us a few good next steps for people who want to raise healthy kids. Yes. So first step is if you're... A woman of childbearing age or no woman of childbearing age, have them get preconception counseling because those those uh, people should be actually taking their folate and their fish oil before they even get pregnant. And then find an integrative OBGYN, which is not very easy to find, but an integrative family practice doctor and, and talk about the things you can do to ensure health during pregnancy and a good birth. Because, you know, increased level of C-sections, increased risk of autism, for example, and then good diet. You know, and the, the, all the things we were talking about, just just starting early and then try and keep your kid off of screens, try and make sure they get enough sleep. Some of my parents have to literally round up every electronic thing in the house and lock them up at night. <laughs> <laughs> Sandy, with regard to C-sections, you may remember that was one of the things that Dr. Fulford talked about. And this yes, was exactly. long before C-sections had become as popular as they are now. But he said that the pressure on the cranium of vaginal birth established the cranial rhythm. 
you know, which he directed his treatment to, and that didn't happen with a C-section. And he thought that any baby born by C-section should go as soon as possible to a cranial therapist, you know, a DA who could do very simple manipulation to help restore that movement. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good idea. And we actually, I actually have a couple of very good cranial psychotherapists that are in the, the Bay Area. I don't know how common they are in some of the areas of the country, but yeah. And, and, you know, I use, I use, I use traditional Chinese medicine for some of my children too. I think that can be really helpful, especially for sort of nervous system issues, you know, that sympathetic fight and flight that so many kids get because anxiety and depression are also <laughs> increasing in our kids, especially anxiety with COVID and everything. It's just, uh, so using traditional Chinese medicine methods can be helpful as well. Well, we so appreciate all the work that you've done to bring a different thought process to both preventing health problems in kids and treating them when they do occur. And your leadership in autism and in ADHD. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you've been doing. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you. And thank for getting me started on this <laughs> out in the <laughs> out in us for her okay yeah. <laughs> listeners this is dr victoria mazes we would love for you to send us your questions for andy myself or for our guests you can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520 621 3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Body of Wonder brought to you by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. If you like the show, please rate us five stars, follow the show, and leave a review. To learn more about integrative healing and the center, go to azcim.org podcast. That's azcim.org podcast.